Paul brings them back to that basic question, that fundamental issue, verse 5. Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And today we continue our study of the book of Galatians. We're looking at Galatians chapter 3. But Jonathan, you threw a question out there that uh, we got to address that here. So what, what is the answer to this question? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles because we observe the law? Or is it something else? Well, the Galatians are obviously struggling because some false teachers have come in and, and really have confused them about the gospel and have caused them to question whether just trusting in Jesus is enough to be right with God. And so Paul's really asking them to examine their Christian experience thus far. And he's saying, look, does, has God been at work among you? Has he given you his spirit because you've just been such great law keepers? And as they look at that, they've got to say, well, no, no, that, that hasn't been the case for us. No, something's happened here because we've trusted in a message, we've believed what we've heard. And, and Paul starts there with that personal experience to, to remind them to argue for the fact that salvation, it comes through faith in Jesus and through nothing else. And that's a fact that we need to be convinced of and we need to be reconvinced of as well. I love the fact that you said reconvinced of that because I think sometimes we have the tendency to believe the gospel and then want to add on to that, to say, yep, it's it's Jesus, but then I ought to be doing this or adding this, or he's going to love me more if I act in this way too. Uh, absolutely. I often say, you know, the default mode of the human heart is legalism. Hmm. It is salvation by works. We assume that God will be pleased with us if we do certain things. And that's just not what the gospel teaches. The gospel tells us we can't do enough to please God, but Jesus has done everything and we trust in him. And, and that's why we need to hear the message of Galatians. We need to retrain our hearts in gospel truth. And of course, if you don't know the Lord Jesus and you haven't heard this truth before, we'd love it if you'd listen in because this truth is for you. Well, it is for you and we'd love for you to follow along as well if you uh, have a Bible and you're able to do so, open it to the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 3, looking at the first 14 verses. And we begin the message, God's plan A. Here is Jonathan. Well, although it is privately owned, all of us here in Ottawa tend to view that great iconic hotel, the Chateau Laurier, as a piece of public property belonging in some sense to us all. That building, that iconic building, sums up so much about our city and its history. It's played a hugely significant role in national life. It's located in such a, a prominent place, and we all feel in some sense that it belongs to us. And so when about a year ago plans were published for a large modernist addition to the chateau, there was a huge and predictable public outcry. Perhaps you remember that. The giant's proposed new wing would have a kind of 1960s office building vibe to it. Lots of straight lines and right angles, lots of glass. Social media exploded with a reaction. Some asked if this was a poorly judged joke. Others described it as horrific, even monstrous. Another commented simply that the addition would make that beautiful building the ugliest building downtown. 
the mayor indicated that the architect simply needed to go back to the drawing board and try again. The collective reaction to the plans was a collective, what were you thinking? What on earth could you have been thinking? Now, that is the spirit and the tone with which our passage this morning begins. Paul launches Galatians chapter 3 with an emphatic, what were you thinking? What could you have been thinking? He is stunned and he is dumbfounded that the Galatian believers seem to be turning their back on the gospel they once received and once believed. The words at the beginning of chapter 3 jump off the page with such a rawness that we can hardly believe that they come from the apostle himself. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The central issue in Galatians, you'll remember from the last two weeks, the main crisis is this. The Galatians had accepted the apostolic gospel that was grounded in this doctrine of justification by faith, in this core truth that sinners are made right with a holy God through faith in Jesus and in His work and through no effort of their own. But you'll remember some false teachers have come in telling the Galatians that Faith actually is not enough for salvation. They need faith, yes, but they also need to do certain things in order to be acceptable to God, in order to be right with God. And now, to Paul's astonishment and bewilderment, the Galatians appear to be listening to these folk. And so Paul's concern in our passage this morning, in this first half of chapter 3, is this and simply this. It is to lay out a compelling case for the core doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. He wants to prove to these believers and to us as well that God makes sinners right with himself, declares them not guilty in his courtroom through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Over the course of this passage that we're going to walk through together, Paul carefully lays out three compelling arguments for justification by faith. And the first of these arguments comes from the Galatians' own personal experience. It is the argument from personal experience. That's where we begin, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? The Galatians have clearly been converted to Christ. They've clearly experienced the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit is, of course, the key marker of true salvation. The Galatians understand that. They get that. Having the Spirit means being right with God. It means having spiritual life. It means being saved. And so Paul asks them, did you receive this gift of spiritual life, this gift of the Holy Spirit, by observing the law, by doing the things that the law requires, or by believing the message you heard? We live in a world where very little comes cheap and nothing comes free. Occasionally we'll receive those emails, won't we, or those phone calls telling us that we have been randomly selected to receive some amazing free prize in some draw that we've never heard about. 
Maybe the first time that kind of offer comes, we'll be a little bit tempted just to believe it and to go with it for a little while to see where this might take us. But when we're soon asked to hand over our bank details or to put down a deposit or to pay some exorbitant fee for delivery of our free prize, our, our kind of scam radar clicks on and we put down the phone, we delete the email. In most situations, we are very wise to be skeptical if we're told that something is coming our way for free. We know that there's no such thing as a free lunch, a free giveaway. But the astonishing thing about the Christian gospel is this. It is really, genuinely free. It is an actual giveaway. And the Galatians, they've seen that, and they've experienced it firsthand. If they think back, they know it's true. Did you receive the Holy Spirit, asks Paul, by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And they know the answer. When Paul first came to them, he hadn't come asking for their bank details and a hefty deposit for the gospel. He didn't hand out a long to-do list a long list of conditions that they needed to meet so that when they handed over the money or ticked off the to-do list or met all the conditions, then they would be given the Spirit as their kind of prize. No, none of that. They received the Spirit as they simply believed the message they received. But now it seems that they are forgetting how things began. They're forgetting what happened, that new life, spiritual life, the gift of the Holy Spirit came to them as they simply believed that apostolic gospel. And the danger now is that they're going to act as fools, verse 3. The danger is that they'll abandon the faith itself, a faith that actually, Paul hints here, has cost them. They face some persecution because of this faith. And so Paul brings them back to that basic question, that fundamental issue, verse 5. Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And, of course, they know the answer. They know their experience. They know their own Christian testimony. On one level, it seems pretty remarkable that this difficulty should be present in Galatia at all. It seems absurd that anyone should think that having begun with the Spirit, as Paul says in verse 2, it would be appropriate to then move on with human effort, to switch tracks. It seems remarkable. But actually, as we reflect on it, how easy it is to do precisely that thing. Think back to when you were first converted. When we first come to faith, we are overwhelmed, aren't we, with the simplicity of the Christian message. We can't save ourselves, but Jesus has done everything needed to make us right with God. What liberation, what freedom. We accept the message with open hands and with a grateful heart. But over time, as we seek to follow Jesus, as we seek to live as disciples of His, how easy it is for us to fall back into that mindset of thinking that our performance actually, ultimately, is the truly important thing in God's eyes. We know the challenge of the call to follow Him, and we get to know that challenge more and more each day as we seek to follow Him. We know all the ups and all the downs of the Christian life, and there are lots of ups and downs over the years in the Christian life, and how easily through those ups and downs over time, we begin to take our eyes off the Lord Jesus and to begin to look inward. Either we see evidence of growth and progress, and actually, we can fall into the trap of beginning to sort of pat ourselves on the back, thinking we've done terribly well, and so God must be terribly pleased with us. 
or we become discouraged, and perhaps that's more likely, at our lack of progress, at our failure, at our sin. And we begin to wonder, actually, is God going to cast me aside if things don't improve? We wonder if God is rethinking His decision to save us. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. And if some teachers and preachers were to come our way, as they did to the Galatian church, teaching a message of salvation by faith plus works, plus human effort, plus human attainment, teaching that religious observance and legal obedience, those things matter for our standing before God. They secure our salvation. How easily we might be taken in. How easily we might lose sight of the authentic gospel. And so, just as Paul urges those Galatian Christians to be very careful to look back and remember how it all began, he urges us to do the very same thing today. When we first came to know the Lord, when we first experienced forgiveness and new life by the Spirit, did that happen for you? Did that happen for me as we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and started behaving better, started being a bit more religious, a bit more upright? Well, no, not a bit of it. That's not the testimony of any one of us in this room. It happened, didn't it? Because the penny dropped because the message that we heard made sense, and we believed it. And so says Paul, continue as you began. Simply continue as you began. Continue trusting Jesus. Continue believing His Word. Continue placing your confidence in Him and in Him alone. Well, that's argument number one, plain and simple, the argument from human experience, from personal experience, and it's actually very compelling. At this point, Paul now delves into the Old Testament Scriptures for his second argument, and it is an argument from the experience of that famous figure, that great figure, Abraham. Verse 6, "'Consider Abraham,' writes Paul, "'he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness.'" Now, Paul's point here is really quite powerful. It's actually foundational for our whole understanding of the gospel and of how the Scriptures fit together. But at the same time, it is a point that is very easily overlooked. It's really actually uh, an insight and an argument that any believing Jew should have seen and understood. It is an argument that you and I should see and understand if we've spent time in the Old Testament Scriptures. But if you're anything like me, it is an argument that is, it is amazingly easy to overlook. This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and we have to pause our message right here, but we'll get back to it in just a moment. This message is called Jesus, God's Plan A. Just a powerful reminder that, you know, Jesus' coming was always a part of God's plan, and justification by faith is in Him alone. If you've missed the beginning of this broadcast, I want you to know you can always go back and listen to every program online. Just come to EncounterTheTruth.org, and you can stream the program or download an MP3. Again, that's at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, we're in the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible open to there yet, I hope you'll grab one and join us in Galatians 3 verses 1 through 14. Once again, here is Jonathan. Last year, a group of archaeologists announced a major new find in the ancient city of Petra 
in Jordan. You'll probably know that Petra is one of the world's most significant and interesting archaeological sites. The ruins are wonderful examples of classical architecture and uh, engineering. And it could have seemed some years ago that all the major structures in Petra had now been found. But recent use of satellite imagery to survey ancient sites has revealed a massive structure there previously undiscovered. The Guardian newspaper reports that satellite surveys of the city revealed a massive platform, 184 feet by 161 feet, with an interior platform that was paved with flagstones, lined with columns on one side and with a gigantic staircase descending to the east. A smaller structure, 28 feet by 28 feet, topped the interior platform and opened to the staircase. Pottery found near the structure suggests that the structure could be more than 2,150 years old. Although a large sort of hump in the landscape had been noticed before, only satellite imagery revealed its true shape and its size and its sheer scope its true nature as a massive man-made structure. The archaeologists reporting on their find entitled their paper, Hiding in Plain Sight. And of course, that's exactly what the ancient building had been doing all those years, hiding before our very eyes. Sometimes we fail to see something that is hugely significant, something that is foundationally important, but it is right there under our noses. And Paul wants us to see that the gospel of justification by faith and faith alone has been right under our noses all the way through biblical history, all the way through the scriptures. If it's been hiding from anyone, hiding from the Jewish teachers, hiding from the Galatians, hiding from us here today, it has only ever been hiding in plain sight. The key passage for this is Genesis chapter 12. It's actually such a key passage, I'd be grateful if we could turn back to it. Genesis chapter 12, if you can flip there with me, I think that will help us. Here at the very beginning, really, of biblical history in Genesis 12, God sets his hand on a man named Abram. He sort of taps him on the shoulder, as it were, and tells him that he plans to use him and he plans to bless him and then make him a blessing to the entire world. He's going to bring salvation to the world through Abram and his family. Now, just notice what happens. Notice what the Lord says. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, of course, all scripture is important. But I think you could make a case for saying that these words in Genesis chapter 12 are some of the very most significant words in all Scripture. In this promise, God sets Abraham's family apart from all other families. He establishes the nation of Israel, and he promises to bring salvation to the world through this very special family. And from our vantage point in history, now looking back, we know that these promised blessings to the world would come through one very special, one particular son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Salvation blessings will come not only to Israel, but also to the nations, and they will come through him. A couple of chapters later in Genesis chapter 15, we find Abraham actually having some doubts about the great promise that God has made him. He's having doubts because he's childless, and he wonders how God is going to work out this great purpose in his life if there are no descendants. So in verse 5 of chapter 15, God repeats his promise. The Lord took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. There are going to be offspring. And now we reach the verse that Paul picks up on, the verse that actually gives us the gospel in a nutshell. Verse 6 of chapter 15, we read this. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. The Lord made astounding covenant promises to Abraham. He tapped him on the shoulder that day right out of the blue and told him that he would give him blessings untold, not because Abraham somehow deserved them, but because God is a God of grace and generosity. He was going to pour out his kindness upon Abraham. And Abraham's response, well, it was to believe God. And as Abraham took God at his word, as he believed God's promise, as he had faith in God, the Lord credited Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. That is, he took a sinful man who had believing faith, and he declared him on the basis of that faith to be right with him. He declared him righteous. He declared him not guilty. He justified Abraham. Now, that is the core of the gospel, isn't it? That is the message that you and I believe and that we have put our trust in. God promises blessing to those who will take him at his word. And as sinful, guilty people do that very thing, as we trust that God will do what he has said he will do, he credits faith to us as righteousness. He makes us right with him. And so the gospel is right here, right in the first book of the Bible in the early chapters. We've barely got through creation and fall, and God is announcing his great gospel plan to save. Now, that plan will come to fruition ultimately through that great coming son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Salvation is going to come to the world through him, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And so what we see from Abraham's story is that salvation by grace through faith in Christ, that was always God's plan A. It was always what he intended to do. It wasn't God's backup plan for when things went wrong in the Old Testament and didn't work out quite as he had hoped. It was his initial plan. It was his main plan. It was his plan A. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and we're going to pause the teaching right here, but we'll continue next time as we continue to look at justification and how it is by faith in Christ and in Him alone. If you ever miss a broadcast, you can always listen online. Just come to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. You know, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. That's exactly what it sounds like. We depend on friends of the ministry to give a financial gift to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. 
But Jonathan, in thinking of friends, all of us, we know that we desire friendships. In fact, I think God created us to be in relationship, in community, and to have true friends. But what does a, a true biblical friend look like? We have an instinctive understanding of friendship. I think God made us to live in relationship with others, and it's a wonderful thing having friends. But the Bible does give us guidelines as to what it means to be a friend to others, and particularly as believers, what it looks like to spur one another on in living the Christian life. And it's healthy for us to look to biblical wisdom for that. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament is a rich place to mine for wisdom on many topics, including friendship. And Vaughn Roberts' little book, True Friendship, is a real gem that helps us draw on some of that wisdom and apply it to our own lives. Well, we want to send you a copy of this book, True Friendship, for your gift of any amount. You can give online by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-998-7884. That's EncounterTheTruth.org or 833-99-TRUTH. Thanks for listening today, and I do hope you'll join us again next time.